Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church Podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. Imagine your your favorite restaurant. Like, Let's say you've got a restaurant in Johnson City. It's your go-to place. When you have family or friends come in from out of town to visit, this is where you want to take them because you want to impress them. And and this is like you brag on this place. I mean, you're giving it five-star reviews, best food in town. But you notice over the course of time that the, the portions start getting a little bit smaller. And the service might not be quite as friendly, but you have such fond memories of the past that that really doesn't affect you. But what you begin to notice is that the more friends and family members and people that you bring to this place, they're just not ranting and raving about it like you were. And then you have to come to grips with things have changed. This restaurant just isn't what it used to be. So you stop going. Like, you know what? I'm just not going to go there anymore. It costs too much. The food's not as good as it once was. Like, just a sad day in your life. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. But but let's just say, like, put yourself in those shoes. Now, let's say you're driving on the road. You haven't been there in a while. You're driving down the road, and you see a big sign. And it says, under new management, right? Like, I don't know the restaurant industry, never worked in it, don't know it, but I'm going to assume that turnover is probably pretty high. And let's just say like a restaurant changes management fairly often. I'm guessing that that's not advertised every time. Like every time a new management shows up, they're not like, put the sign out, put the sign out. I'm betting that there's a lot of just behind the scenes management shifts and changes that we never know about. So why in the world would you put the sign out under new management? Because you want to communicate a message. Something has changed and it's going to be better, right? Like you're saying like, hey, maybe you had a bad experience, but something has changed here. And and your hope is that it's changed for the better. You're trying to say like, hey, we're we're trying to go a new direction. Things have changed. We think it's going to be good. We think you'd like it. Would you come back? Well, today we're going to talk about what it means to be under Christ or with Jesus and how that's kind of like being under new management. Because when we say we're with Jesus or when we are under Christ, that means that's the message that we're saying something in us or something in me has changed for the better. Right? But when we think about that, how many of you wrestle with that? Like, okay, like I believe Jesus is better and I believe that he's changed me, but why do I still wrestle with sin? Right? Like, like, like if, if this thing has changed me, then why are there some old habits that just won't die? Or maybe you're here today and you're like, hey, I, I'm not a Christian. I'm not, I'm just kind of like, I got dragged here. And, and you're here and you're saying like, this is different than mine. Like they, they, they have their struggles and their stuff. And so like, and they tell me that Jesus changes everything. And I'm like, does it? So maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking like, I, I don't know how to, how to like reconcile the fact that Christians say Jesus changes everything, but then their lives really don't look much different than anyone else. Like if, if that's been a question that you've ever wrestled with, I think today's going to be good for you. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter six. Real quick, we've been in a series where we're just going through the book of Romans and the first five chapters are all about what God has accomplished for us 
in Christ. Right? It's all about it. It shows us how because of our nature and our sin, we fractured our relationship with God. There's nothing good in us that can repair that. We're hopeless on our own. But Jesus came and lived the perfect life we can never live. He died the death that we deserved. And because of that, he offers us this gift. It's a gift of grace. It's not something we earn. It's something that we receive, that we can be saved by grace through faith. It's something that we receive. And, and that's a good message. And so now, in chapter six, um, chapter six through eight, he's going to talk about what God wants to accomplish in us. So chapters one through five, what God has accomplished for us. Now, chapter six through eight, what God wants to accomplish in us. All right. Now, in light of the first five chapters, in light of the good news that our salvation is not something we earn by living a good life, or doing less bad things than good things, or more more like righteous acts, but our salvation is something that we we are given, right? In light of that, Paul says this in verse one: What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? All right. So what he's doing here is he's anticipating how the message of saved by grace through faith alone can be misunderstood. He's anticipating that someone might hear that and go, doesn't that leave the door open for sin? I mean, if you're telling me that nothing I do or nothing I've done can make God love me less or love me more, then then does it really matter how I live my life? Like, can I just go on sinning and be like, well, God's going to forgive me, so I'll do whatever I want. Like, so if someone hears that, right, if that's how they misunderstand the message, Paul, Paul wants to object to that. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, he he says, that's ridiculous. The only way you could buy into that type of logic, the logic that says I can do whatever I want because God's going to forgive me anyways. He says the only way you can buy into that logic is if you miss the significance of, of what Jesus has done for you. Like if you miss the significance of of how grace is free for us, but it was so costly for him, right? So he says, how can we who died to sin live in it, right? So what does it mean to die to sin, right? Like like if we're like, we have died to sin. Well, first of all, it's not a physical death. Christians aren't like all dying. You know, it's like, we're all like, ah, I died, I came back. Like none of us have that experience in here. Just gonna throw that out there. Like, not, like we're not physically dying and then coming back to life, all right, like that. It doesn't mean, all right, it doesn't mean if we say we have died to sin, it doesn't mean that we no longer want to sin or that sin no longer has an influence on our choices, right? Because in verses 12 and 13, he's gonna encourage us not to sin anymore. So why would he encourage us not to sin if it was something we didn't wanna do, right? So like it doesn't mean that we just lose all desire to sin. What it does mean, all right, can be found in, in the singularity of the word sin. Like notice he doesn't say we have died to sins, plural. He says we have died to sin, singular. The reason why he uses the word singular is because he, or the, the singular word sin is because he's not talking about our individual sinful acts. He's talking about, he's talking about sin as this controlling force in our life. He's talking about sin as a way of how it's this power behind the things that we do. All right. And so he's saying that you, the you that was controlled by sin has spiritually died off. And if that's the case, if that you has died off, then that means that the power of sin shouldn't dominate the way you live. 
In other words, he's saying, look, if you really know Jesus, if you really know grace, it should change something in you. It should change the way you live. Look at verses three through five. He says this, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Right? And so, so he's, he's talking about baptism here. And he's not talking about like how when we get baptized, something magically happens and that's the moment that sin loses its power. He's talking about something that is an outward physical symbol of an inward spiritual reality. Right? And he just he talks about baptism assuming that if you're a Christian, you've been baptized. It's something he's like, he's like, look, if you if you're a Christian, like baptism doesn't save you, but like what's keeping you from obeying a command that Jesus gives us? He just assumes that everyone has been baptized. So he's saying, like, hey, remember back to that moment when you were baptized. Like, let's think about what that was. And so he's saying baptism is a big deal because it's a powerful picture, right? Baptism is a big deal because it's a powerful picture. Like when you think about the, if you're to go back in the Greek word and, and read the word for baptism, in relation to a ship, it would be like a ship sinking. So like a ship that was baptized was a ship that had a hole in it, hit a rock, and just sunk to the bottom of the ocean, right? Fully submerged. Now, the word baptism, when used in, in like response to a person, wasn't a ship sinking, it was a person drowning to death, all right? It's this idea of like, when you're getting baptized, you're showing a picture of this spiritual death, all right? He's saying, it's a way of saying that I'm with Jesus because he died in my place, and that's what brought me into a right relationship with God. So it's this idea of like, hey, Jesus saved me from my sin. It saved me from that broken and fractured relationship. But notice that in verse four, there's that phrase, in order, all right? In order, what he's saying here is that the, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus did more than just save us from sin. It saved us for a new way of life. It saved us for the, a way of living that should be reflected in the way that Christ has changed us, all right? Like, so the gospel is meant to radically change who you are and how you live, right? The gospel is meant to radically change who you are and how you live. And that's what baptism is supposed to be a picture of, how it's changed who you are, what you've been saved from, and it shows a picture of who you now are and what you've been saved for. Like right now, how many of you have seen those, like the decade pictures? Like, what did you look like 10 years ago? Like, I was chunky. And I'm like, I'm like I should show that picture, right? But 10 years ago, all right, 10 years ago, in my house, still a bachelor, um, I got a new washer and dryer and I was changing it out. Like I was, I was taking the old one out, putting the new ones in. And as I'm unscrewing this wire, I start to feel this tingle in my hand. I'm like, that's weird. And, um, and I realized that it was still plugged in and that there's a reason why screwdrivers have very thick like plastic or rubber handles. So imagine if I'm like, I wonder if that wire's live. And I just reached out and grabbed it, 
right? If I grabbed that wire, it would have ended badly, all right? And there would be evidence that I experienced the, the force that was in the electricity, right? Like there would be evidence that I experienced the power that was in that wire. And he's saying, look, if, if you're with Jesus, that it should be changing. There should be evidence in your life that you have experienced the power of Jesus, right? And so here, here's my, my, my thought or my question. Maybe you felt like the tingle of Jesus, right? Like maybe you're here today and you're like, why am I not changing? Or why haven't I changed? And maybe, maybe like ask yourself if this is you, maybe you've experienced the tingle, right? Like you're, you're, you've, you've touched it. Like, like there's a tingle, but you've never fully grabbed hold of him, right? Like Jesus is like, look, I don't want you to just tiptoe in. I want you to be all in. I want you to go all in. And so if you haven't experienced the life-changing power of salvation, could it be that maybe you haven't fully grabbed hold of what it means to trust Jesus, right? Because if you've trust Jesus, the gospel should radically change who you are and how you live. Look at verse six. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So he's, he's elaborating on what it means for us to, to die to our sin and be alive to Christ, all right? And so with that death, verse seven gives the imagery of a relationship being severed. It's the imagery of like a relationship being completely broke off. I mean, think about um, phones. I have no idea how many cell phones I've had in my life. I can tell you this. The first one I had was a Nokia, and I had 30 minutes a month emergency only, right? Like, it's like that thing was like, you only call if this is emergency, right? And so like, over the course of time, though, as you get more and more phones, like from Nokia to, to Blackberries, like, are those still a thing, right? Then like, eventually, you know, Droid, and then a, an iPhone, but, like, every time I got a new cell phone, like, even if it was the same brand, the charger never seemed to match up. Right? It's like you got to get a new wall charger, a new car charger, like something else. And now like if you get a new iPhone, it's, you know, even your earbud thing might not work. It's like all of a sudden, like with the upgraded phones, the connectors seem to always change. Right? And so in verse 7, this idea of like this relationship being severed, it's like, look, when you give your life to Christ, you get an upgrade. And that old connector, that old charger that, that would plug you into the power source of sin is no longer working. Like that charger, that connector no longer can adapt to who you are. You have been broke off from that. Sin can no longer plug into your life and be the driving force of who you are. Look at verse, verse eight. He says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So, so he has been talking about how we're supposed to live this new life in the present, but now he shifts to the future tense. He says that, that we will also live with him, like this, this kind of future tense hope, because Paul knows, like, think about all the ways that you right now are going, I don't think I'm experiencing an upgraded life, 
right? Like how many of you feel like, like something hasn't necessarily, like I still wrestle with stuff. My knees are still jacked up. I got a sore throat. Like there's a lot of evidence of sin's presence still around. And so he says, look, look towards the future. Like if God raised Jesus from the dead, that gives us the assurance that he will one day bring to full completion the work he started in you. So he has started this work. He's going to finish the work. We can have assurance of that. Then verse 10, he, he summarizes this whole section. He says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. He's saying, look, when Jesus died, he saved you from the penalty of sin. But Jesus didn't just die to save you from something. He also died to save you for something, a life that follows his example or a life that looks like Jesus. Um, this is you know, where I think, like I love the ancient creeds, like if you're the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, it's like, what do Christians believe? You're like, this stuff, like I believe in God the Father. Like, like all of a sudden, if you look at those, the problem with a lot of creeds and belief statements, like what does this church believe? Um, it, it's called the empty cloak. Right? It's like the empty cloak of the gospel. And so when you think about that, like a, a cloak or the cover, it's like a lot of the belief statements we have focus on the outside of the gospel. It's like Jesus had a miraculous birth. Then we just jumped to like he died a sacrificial death and he had a victorious resurrection. It's like, what do you believe about Jesus's birth? What do you believe about Jesus's death? What do you believe about Jesus's resurrection? And, and it's all about the outside and we miss the inside stuff. Like the cloak is empty. And, and so like if all you focus on is the inside stuff though, and like you get the outside stuff wrong, like you mess it up too. Like we need the cloak filled out. So the life of Christ, so much of what we get in like the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John show us an example of how Jesus lived. And he's saying, like, look, I only did what I saw the father doing. And he's like, follow my example. Like look at how I've lived my life and, and live your life like me. So he's encouraging us to not only embrace the truth of the gospel and say, like, I'm saved from hell, I'm good to go, and I'm just going to hang out until I get to heaven. He's like, no, 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 today, live in the present, live in the now, following my example, live like I have lived. All right, so, so the main thing from today's text is that Jesus saves us from sin and for a new and better life, All right? Jesus saves us from sin and for a new and better life. Now that sounds so simple. So it's not hard for us to understand that truth academically, but it is hard for us to understand this truth in light of what we experience, right? Like it's hard, like if you're like, okay, Jesus saved me from sin and he saved me for a new life. The gospel radically changes who I am and how I live. Like we can get that academically, but how many of our experiences just don't quite add up to that. Like how many of you are like, then if that's true, then why do I still struggle with this sin? Right? Like if that's, or if this, this power source, if my power source has changed, like if I'm no longer plugged into sin, but I'm plugged into Christ, then like how do I tap into that so that I can experience this life change? Right? And, and so our experience seems to be like, I'm not sure about that. So, so how do we reconcile this truth to the way we experience our Christian lives, right? So to, to the question, why do I still struggle with sin, right? I think something that's helpful is to understand how the gospel is at work, past, present, and future, okay? To understand how the gospel is at work, past, 
present, and future. So I'm going to give you guys three theological words, words that we so often read over and like, I think I should know what that means. I'm not quite sure. And we just kind of skim on. I want to give you guys clear definitions. And so if you're a note taker, I think this is really good to understand because this stuff is great. So how is the gospel at work in the past? How is it at work in the present? And how is it at work in the future? All right, so gospel past. We call that justification. We've seen that word so much in the book of Romans, justification. What does it mean that we are justified? What is the doctrine of justification? It, It simply means this. The penalty of sin has been removed, right? The penalty of sin has been, right, past tense, removed. And because of that, our position with God has changed, right? When Jesus lives the life we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve. He credits everything that he did into our account. So God takes away all of our sin, puts all of the righteousness of Christ in its place. So when God looks at us positionally, he doesn't see a sinner, he sees a saint, right? So throughout the whole New Testament, when Paul is writing letters, he's like to the saints at Rome, to the saints at Philippi, to the saints at Corinth. He's constantly reminding them because of Jesus and what he did, removing that penalty of sin, your position has changed. God no longer sees you as a sinner. He sees you as someone who has lived like Christ. He sees you as a saint, right? So justification, the penalty of sin is removed, your position with God has changed, right? That moves us to the next thing, sanctification, right? So justification is how the gospel has saved you, past tense. Sanctification is how the gospel is saving you, present tense. Now, justification, the penalty is removed. Sanctification, the power of sin is removed. That's what he's getting at in in chapter six. In sanctification, the power of sin has been removed from our lives. And because that's been removed, because we're now in the power of Christ, he has enabled us to live changed lives. Right now, that's that's a progress, like it's progressive. And so that means that like because sin is still present, like we still have these struggles. I think about... um, there's this podcast called The Black Box. I don't know if it's like an ongoing podcast or just a one and done, um, but it talks about caterpillars. And it's like, do you know what happens when a caterpillar like becomes a cocoon and how it becomes a butterfly? And I, when I heard this question, I was like, I think it like cocoons itself and then sprouts wings. And then the wings bust out and it flies, right? Like that's not how it works at all. If you, the caterpillar, it goes into a cocoon and if just a few days in, if you cut that cocoon in half, you would not be cutting a caterpillar with almost wings in half. It would be just a bunch of genetic goo, just a bunch of goo. Like it it literally goes into that cocoon and it liquefies. It's just genetic goo. It's not like a caterpillar that's like somehow putting wings out. It's just a new substance, which means that over time it becomes something totally different. And then it breaks out as a butterfly. All right, so it's, it's not a caterpillar that sprouts wings. It is a new creation. Now, what's crazy is like, they're like, this is something new, All right? They took a bunch of caterpillars and they had a scent that like caterpillars don't like. And they started like buzzing, like, and then spraying the scent. And the caterpillars were like, this is horrible. And they would go to the other side of the box, All right? So a bunch of caterpillars like, you don't like this scent? And they're just like, PETA was so mad, like, like, ah, this is me- like, and so they would go to the other side. Now, they, these, these caterpillars went to the cocoon, right? In the cocoon, they become a liquid genetic goo, 
They recreate and become butterflies. It's like something is created new. They took a bunch of caterpillars that never had the bad smell experience that became butterflies with a bunch of butterflies that had the bad caterpillar smell experience and put them in the same box. And when they hit the buzzing sound, those who had experienced the smell remembered it and moved over. Like, it's like they become something completely new, but there's something from their past that stays with them. Like, this is crazy. Like, listen to the podcast. It'll blow your mind. You're like, what in the world? Like, my mind's blown, All right. And so, so what, what's crazy is like, so with us as Christians, like, we are created as something completely new, but it's like there's something from our past that we still remember. So let's say that you had a, a big field, like two fields with a huge wall, unscalable wall in the middle. One field is controlled by Satan and the other is controlled by God. It's like God took us out of this field. He's like, I want to bring you over here. And he puts us in this field and there's this huge wall. We're completely secure and safe in the presence of our father. And even though we're in this new field, we can still hear the voice of Satan. And out of old habit, we sometimes still listen and allow it to have influence on our lives. But we're new and we're safe and we're in a new position, right? So sanctification is this progress, this progressive piece of like saying like sin no longer has power in my life. And that enables me to now live the life that I've been saved for, right? But, all right, like that's how the gospel is saving us, all right? Like this, this, this progress. Um, we have the third thing. The third thing is called glorification, all right? So justification, sanctification, glorification. Sanctification is how the gospel is saving us. Justification is how it has saved us. Glorification is how the gospel will save us, right? So justification, the penalty of sin is removed, you're like, this is redundant. I want you to get it. The penalty of sin is removed. Your position is changed. Sanctification, the power of sin is removed, enabling you to be a changed person. Glorification is when the presence and possibility of sin is removed. That's when we realize and, and see ourselves fully as God has seen us all along, right? So that's what Paul's getting at in verses eight and nine. It's like, hey, we have this hope for the day that when the presence and possibility of sin is removed as well. And so until then, as we wrestle with the effects of sin in our lives, we have this hope that there's nothing a good old resurrection can't fix, right? And so, so in relation to these, these three words, justification, sanctification, and glorification, we can rest confidently because of justification. And that allows us to labor diligently in sanctification as we hope expectantly for glorification. You see, justification gives us assurance. In sanctification, we have to exercise patience. And then as we look towards glorification, we are eager to see this project that God has started completed. All right, and so, so that kind of helps us hopefully to wrap your mind around like, why do I still struggle? The power has been removed but the possibility is still there because of sin's presence. And there will be a day when that is taken out as well. But until then, we're gonna have these struggles and that's normal. That's why Paul encourages us not to sin. So let's look at the second thing. The first one is like, why do I still struggle? It's because there's still the presence and possibility of sin. The next question is this. Okay, like, well, how do I change? 
Like if you talk about sanctification, how that the power of sin is removed and now we're enabled to, to live the life that Jesus has saved us for, like how do I change to be more like Jesus? Look at verse 11. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider, like the first thing is like consider. He's like, think about this. Like, think about this a lot. Think it through. Consider yourself. Now, why in the world would he tell you to consider yourself dead if you already are dead? It's like, no one has to be like, Jeff, you live in Tennessee. I'm like, really? Like, I've got a license. That's it. Like, I'm not, like, like, I don't have to consider that. I just know that, right? So why would he call us to consider this, right? How many of you ever, how many of you have ever gotten one of those, like, fundraiser cards, it's like the softball team shows up and like, would you buy our card for 20 bucks? You get all these discounts, right? And like, it's like you get a free queso at Barb's with the purchase of a burrito and a drink or like, you know, you, you maybe you buy two entrees, get a free dessert at Bonefish, whatever it is, like you get your card and then it, you're supposed to take around town. Now, I think wives and moms are great at that. They're like, they're like, like, I got this card. You know, like they pull it out. Like, like, can I get, like, how does this, and like, and you're benefiting from it. Guys, like we get home, like we just went to Barb's. Like, did you use the queso? I'm like, no. Like, I forgot about, the, like the card only benefits you if you use it, right? And so why he calls us to consider, he's like, look, the, the reality of who you are in Christ only benefits you when you use it when you remember who you are. So I love that, that word, consider. It's the same word that Paul used previously in the book of Romans when he said counted, right? When he talks about how God counted Jesus's life for our life, right? And so we think about it, like, that means that when God looks at us, he sees us as if we were those who lived the same life that Jesus lived. And so now when he says consider or counted, he's saying, now see yourself like God sees you. He's saying, look, you need to think about how God sees you and see yourself in that same light. So that word is intentionally drawing us to consider ourselves or to think about ourselves or to see ourselves as God has seen us. Now, what, what happens is we tend to let experience drive our beliefs. Right? We tend to let experience drive our beliefs. But, but here what, here's what Paul is saying in relation to change. He's saying that change starts with right belief and that enables us to experience change. All right, change starts with right belief, seeing yourself as God sees you and that enables you to experience change. So another way to think about this is that identity, all right, proper identity, knowing who you are in Christ drives activity. Identity drives activity, right? And so, so like, yeah, we want to believe rightly, but it's more than just believing good theology. Like God wants us to also let that belief lead and infiltrate our actions, right? So, so what are we supposed to do? What's the activity we're called to? Look at verses 12 through 13. He says this, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. All right, so the first thing, the first activity we're called to do is, is to not let sin reign. Right, so he's basically like, look, we're supposed to fight for something and fight against something. So what are, what are we called to fight against? Sin, he says, don't let it reign in your life. 
So what does it, what does it mean for sin to reign? Like, what does it mean for sin to, to rule or control? Well, it means that sin is something that you're cozied up next to. It's something that you're embracing. It's something that's becoming this kind of habit or pattern of life, right? Now, what's really interesting is, is in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives this huge vice list, and he goes, like, those types of people don't inherit the kingdom of God. And it lists all these different sins. Now, look, I'm not in a position... Like, I don't know your heart. So I'm not in a position to tell you that if you have this habitual sin pattern, then you're not a Christian. Like, I can't say that, but here's what I can tell you. If I'm reading Paul right, if you have sin that is reigning in your life, you shouldn't have a ton of confidence in your salvation. That's what, that's what Paul's getting at in chapter two. He's like, look, I'm not saying you're not saved, but you shouldn't have confidence that you are, right? So is sin something that you're embracing and living with and saying, this is just who I am? Or is it something that even when you struggle, you say, like, I don't want this. I'm trying to fight against it, right? He's saying, like, look, we need to fight sin. The, the word member and instruments has the imagery of weapons, right? So what he's saying here is, is sin doesn't rule you, but it's still waging war. I love what John Owen says. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. In other words, when it comes to sin in our life, like, we can't be pacifists. We can't be like, I'm Gandhi, like, I'm just going to, like, sit here and, like, and make peace. It's like, no, like, we've got to go delta force on this stuff. Like, I've got an objective, and it's to kill. Like, let's go. Let's kill. Like, we're not peacefully approaching sin. We're aiming to kill it because if we don't kill it, it will be killing us, right? So the first thing is to fight against sin, and the next thing is to fight for Christ-likeness. Like, I, I love that, like, he doesn't just tell us what not to do. He also tells us what to do. Like, I could tell you to stop eating fast food. Like, you shouldn't do that. Like, that's bad, right? Like, watch this documentary on Netflix. Like, it's bad, right? Like, like I could, but if you just stop eating fast food, like, you're not going to be able to, to sustain life because you've got to replace it with good food. Like, if you want to maintain a new life pattern, that you don't have, to, it's not about just stopping something. It's about replacing it with something Better. So he says, like, hey, the better is pursuing Christ's likeness. So it's not about just like, hey, don't do this stuff. It's like, instead, replace it with living like Jesus. All right, and then look at verse 14. He says this, for sin will have no dominion over you since you were not under law, but under grace. Like, I mean, like, look, I love, like, when we try to follow the law, it generally leads to a lot of guilt. I'm not good enough, haven't done enough. Like, I feel like I'm always failing. But he says, look, you're not under guilt. You're under grace. You're under grace. That means that what we do, right, from identity, the, the activity that is driven by our identity, we don't do for God, God's acceptance. We do because of his acceptance, right? Like, our activity doesn't lead God to accept us, but God's acceptance of us in Christ should lead to our obedience or our pursuit of Christ-likeness. Let me, let me wrap up with this. A um, couple of weeks ago, maybe months ago, um, after church, Lucy and, and we, like, we took our kids down to Main Street Pizza. The, you know, like, we were down there, and when, like, we, we tear this whole thing down every Sunday so that we're normally walking out a little bit later. And so like, as we were walking in, everyone else is kind of wrapping up. Right, so we, we walk in, like say our highs, and we go sit at this table and we order our food and we sit there. And by the time we finish our food, the kids are slow eaters. I'm like a dominant eater. I just eat. Like I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm like I'm, I finish my food and everyone else is still like talking. Like, um, so like we 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 sit there, we finish our food, and the restaurant's kind of cleared out. 
And so it's, it's this awkward moment of like, is she ever going to bring us our bill? And, um, and so the lady like, can, I, can we get our bill? And she goes, oh, someone covered it for you. It's like, what? What? Like, that feels weird for me. Like, I, it's like someone's trying to be loving, but I'm like, I'm like, are you sure? Like, I don't like, like did they tip? Like, did they tip? Like, like how, do we, how do we handle this? Like, so like now the truth, right? The truth is that someone paid our bill. Like, I was like, would have, wouldn't have ordered. Like, if someone, if I know that, like, I'm not ordering the second slice. Our kids are getting waters. Like, we're not, like, we're not eating everything we want if someone else is paying, right? Like, we want to make sure that we don't feel guilty, right? But we ordered whatever we wanted. It was paid. That's the truth. But my feelings were weird. Like, getting up and walking out of the restaurant, you feel like, is someone going to come get me? Like, you're like, like, you're walking, like, kind of making eye contact with the waitress. You're like, and, and instead of her being like, what are you doing? She's like, have a great day. Like, like she's, she, she knows that the bill was paid. So we walk it. Now what happens is as I'm walking down the street or up the street to our, to our car, all of a sudden that, that truth begins to set in and my feelings begin to change. I begin to feel loved on. And I, I begin to, to feel the freedom that I have from that bill that was already paid. You see what it means to live under grace right, is that you're free and able to walk away from who you were and into who you now are. You're free to walk away from who you were, and you're free to walk into who you now are. God, thank you for your grace. We know that you have paid the penalty of our sin at the cross but you didn't just save us from our sin. You saved us for a new and better life. That God, who we now are in Christ is not who we once were. Yeah, we want to experience what's true of us internally. God, we want to experience what's true of us eternally now. We want to experience that externally in the way that we live our lives. So God, help us to change. Remind us who we are, and God, drive the activity of our life that we would be fighting sin, that we wouldn't be comfortable with it, but we'd fight it, and that we would pursue living out a life that looks like Jesus. And God, as, as we fall, as we fall along the way, remind us of your grace, that no matter how we do, you love us just the same. Now, that's good news this morning. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.